Welcome to Heavy Strategy. And today's discussion is around strategy architecture and building strategy roadmaps on a budget. And what we are trying to recognize here is that not every company is large enough to have a full-time architecture and strategy group where you actually have like a CTO, chief technology officer, whose job it is to look forward and an enterprise architecture team who's peering into the future and, you know, sitting down to go talking with vendors about products coming down the pipe and future upgrades that might be relevant for them. And most organizations, uh, you know, especially when we talked about it in our recent podcast on evanescent versus enduring, a lot of companies just decide they're just going to move as and when they need something. So you don't really know what's happening. And so when you finally engage with putting together strategies or architectures, the team and the people in place are not well prepared. What we're looking for today is asking questions and not trying to answer them, but asking <clears> questions <throat> to provoke you to think about how you're going to approach this if this problem comes to you. Now, Jonah, this was your idea. Did I wrap up that concept reasonably well? Uh, very well, Greg. Very well indeed. And in fact, the, the, the thing I want to start with is a question that says, given that the kinds of companies that don't have the budget for an architect or you know strategy group typically are already overloading their technology folks, mm. the real challenge comes down to not only knowing what to do, but being able to carve out the time in your day jobs to do that. And I think that the challenge I would throw forward to any of the listeners is how successful are you already at making time in your day jobs for doing a project that suddenly becomes important? And I say this because a lot of my clients are in the mode of whatever the business asks for, we do. And if it's more work, we figure out how to fit that that 50 pounds into a 20 pound bag because saying no is not in our lexicon. I have a pet theory here is that a lot of IT teams are actually like fire stations. They're like an emergency response team. For much of the time, although they're sometimes doing project work, a lot of the time they're sitting there waiting for something to happen so they can burst into action. So a lot of the escalations come up from the help desk and that's an emergency response. But between emergencies, they may have some time or they may not. If you're lucky enough to have time between emergencies, and that's not always true, or if you have time between projects, again, not always true, you can often put together the strategy by sitting there and looking busy at your desk by looking into the future and thinking about strategic. I, yeah, I, I disagree with that actually rather heavily. Putting together a strategy isn't something you do around the edges. I would say the first thing you need to do is start to think about how you can change the hero culture. Because what you're describing is the hero culture, and I know a lot of my clients have it. Mm. What they do is they reward IT for solving a problem. So wait till something gets really bad, spring into action, work for 48 hours, fix it, mm. and that person gets a raise or a bonus and a pat on the head and an attaboy, girl, <laughs> and that's completely broken because yeah. it's it's right. IT should just work, and making it just work takes planning, and, and planning takes strategy. Yeah. So if you're shoving your strategy planning into the corners around the emergencies, you'll never get it done. I guess I was thinking about it from a different point of view. There's, there's a certain amount of research that goes into strategy and architecture. If you're going to do an architecture or going to do a strategy plan, you have to be aware of what's happening in the market, where a technology is going, existing technology is going, what new technology is coming in. Look at, for example, uh, at AI and LLMs and how they're changing the way that we approach technology. If you just sat there and waited until suddenly you're being patch product around LLMs and chat, you know, chatbot sort of technologies, you may not be well prepared to understand what's going on. 
Well, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I guess I'm, I'm falling into the trap of devaluing my own, you know, my own day job because I, you and I both conduct this research on a regular basis. It's like breathing. I think it's one piece of, but not the most important part of doing the strategy. So I think one of the challenges I would sort of toss out to, to listeners is honestly do a self-assessment self and an organizational assessment and see to what degree you guys are victims of the hero's culture. Because you can't necessarily fix it, but knowing it is the first step towards fixing it. And you will fix that culture by having a strategy. Um, if you're a hero culture, step one is to say, this yeah. is a bad thing. It's not a good thing. Well, it's I not the way. The hero culture implies that somebody like the CIO or the CEO has failed to allocate budget to clearing the brush underneath. And so when there's a huge fire, you rush out and put it out and everybody congratulates you for putting it out. It's actually a bigger, I mean, yes, it's a reflection. Hero cultures result from not having a strategy. Yeah, that's true. And then what I was also thinking is if you actually sat down and did a post, you know, a review after, you know, why did this fire get lit? And you say, well, because we didn't do a regular burn back uh, just to use your bushfire methodology or, you know, whatever. We didn't do right. regular burn backs to, you know, consume the dry wood that was burning up in the undergrowth. And so when the fire went up, it rapidly got out of our control and turned into a major thing instead of a minor thing. A lot of organizations which are in reaction mode, won't be doing the post-event audit. They won't That's, be looking at Yeah, you nailed it, Greg. That's the problem. You're, you're positing two things that won't happen in a hero culture. The yeah. first one is that is that post, the after-action review is what we call it, hmm. that digs into the five whys and has this mindset of, we don't ever want to do this again, so let's figure out what, what went wrong. And the second one is the, the ability to go into your after-action review without blaming, without finger-pointing, not hmm. casting it as a blame game. So those two things are likely not happening in a hero culture because all you want to do is reward the heroes and move on. I guess what we've done there yep. is managed to separate the difference between a strategy and sort of an architecture. An architecture is we've bought no, a bunch we have, of No, we haven't done that at all. Okay. So we then... haven't done that at all. We haven't even gotten into the details. All right. We've talked yeah. about the, the kind me. Come of Come on, organization... provoke me. Hit me with it. That we've talked about the kind of organization that results from not having a strategy and roadmap, and that's the hero culture organization. But we haven't talked at all about the difference between a strategy, architecture, and roadmap. So before we even get into that, I think you have to, number one, the first question is how far in the spectrum of a hero culture are we? And then what can we do to change that? And you can't walk in Monday morning and go, hey, guys, we're a hero culture. I heard a podcaster say that was a bad idea, so we're going to switch. <laughs> That's a recipe for failure. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is begin budgeting the time for the, that action after action review, begin holding it, treating it as sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing as you do that is building up the justification for having a strategy and also getting into some good discipline that allows you to carve out time in the busyness of your day to create that strategy. That's why I'm pushing back so hard on the whole notion of strategy as something that can be done around the edges. I love to think about this as like prayer or meditation for people who do that stuff. Yeah. There's a really wonderful quote from a religious person whose name escapes me. And actually, I don't even remember the denomination. Hmm. But the person said, every day I try to I try to pray for 30 minutes unless it's a really busy day. Then I pray for an hour. Point being <laughs> that you no matter how crazy it is, you have to carve out that space in your mind to think about the big stuff. I agree with you up to a point. I think that's the right way to do it would be to sit down and have a full-time discipline structure and approach to it. But I was also able to do strategy and architecture as part of a firefighting team. 
I was able to sit at a table and people would say, oh, this is terrible. What are we going to do about it? And I would just pipe up and say, the, the simple reality is you didn't do the basics, you know, the basic hygiene to keep the system running smoothly. We don't have visibility upgrades, patching, blah, 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 whatever it might be. And really we should evaluate where, you know, follow what the market is doing and best practice in the market is deploy a monitoring system, get scheduled maintenance. And eventually that would get through. It is possible, I think, to approach I, a strategic. I, I, I believe you. I absolutely, I, I absolutely believe you, but I want to stress that that's not optimal. And I'll give you examples in my, in my own world. If there's a process or architecture error, I guarantee you, I can sit down and in 15 minutes, address the root cause and build out an architecture or a process that's going to be better than what we're dealing with. I also guarantee you that that's not going to be optimum and I'm going to miss some big chunks because to make an art, a strategy architecture and roadmap that works for the organization, you have to get input from big swaths of the organization. And if you're just taking a smart person who's like, crap, why did this happen? Let me figure it out. Let me figure out what we can do better. It will be a fix, but it's going to be much less effective a fix than if you do it properly by gathering input okay. from other people. But I think, and that you... unfortunately is not something you can do in around the edges. Okay, let me challenge you there. I think there's mm -hmm. a difference between big S strategy meetings, reviews. We'll talk about a process and and how to do it. But I think there's also a place for small S strategy inside of mid-sized organizations where there's the committee of people the committee of the of the firefighters or the the emergency response team who look at every emergency and say you know really we've got to get on with you know some sort of preventative preparation for these types of events and those organizations may never have a, a proper strategic function because the environment doesn't support it or because people don't believe in it you know whatever it might I, be I'm I'm going to push back on you there, Greg, mm. because you're you're positing having a strategy as a big, heavy, onerous thing. Mm. It's not any more than meditating for 15 minutes a day. Anyone can meditate. I mean, I don't happen to like meditation, but the point is, it's not necessarily a big, heavy, onerous thing. It's a way of thinking that once you have the strategy, you can always change the strategy, but you're always constantly throughout the day asking yourself, is what I'm doing aligned with that strategy? Yes, no. If no, do we need to change the strategy or the thing? And I, I, you, you can have lots of little mini strategies, but the risk of doing that is that you paint yourself into a corner or lock yourself into a cul-de-sac because suddenly at some deep level, they don't align hmm. and you're stuck. And now yeah. you're like, oh, shoot. I would push back on the idea that building a strategy is this monstrous heavy exercise. What I'm saying is it is possible to do this part-time if your organization... It, it, it's not impossible. Yes. I, I, that's my point is. It is. I, I mean, there's big S strategy where it's all, you know, blessed by the executives and reports to the board and the CIO and there's a CTO and there's. I, I would not know. distinguish between them, though. The point oh, is okay, you right. want to have you, ha you want to have a high level big S strategy, mm. which does which can be done part time. You just have to have the discipline to do it. And part of the discipline is recognizing that you've become a hero culture mm. and taking steps to move away from it. And the other discipline that I would sort of toss out there is one of the brilliant things that DevOps brought to the universe. It's brought a lot of chaos. We'll yeah, grant yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, but it yeah. did bring this idea that you that it is legit to go back to the customers and go, what is the minimum viable product here? Because we can't do everything. And oh, by the way, we have a queue of things to do. And we're only going to get to 20% of that. And you have to be okay with that. Because you can't just randomly throw stuff on the queue and expect that IT will keep doing it. The degree to which you can get people to internalize that, and as a boss, I try very, very hard to be the kind of boss that when I say, hey, 
go do this thing. My Mm -hmm. employee looks at me and says, okay, but I'm already full up. Which of the five things you asked me to do, do you, do I drop? And Mm -hmm. I should always be able to give that answer Mm -hmm. and give a time frame. That's another kind of cultural thing you want to inculcate in both your team and your organization as best you can. Yeah. And that's kind of as pre-prep work for doing the strategy. Let's talk about how we would actually do it. We've talked about whether mm-hmm. we could do part-time, full-time. I believe that you could start part-time and move it. I don't think we ever disagreed on that. I think one area we both agree is you can do this part-time. What would be one way of attacking the building a strategic or an architectural function? Do you just pick someone and say, now that's your job, or would you go to an outside source? Uh, Well, of course, you and I both being consultants are going to give the self-serving answer that you should go to a consultant. And in fact, you should very likely because it's one thing to say, meditate for 15 minutes, and it's another to have a coach that makes sure you do it, right? And then imagine expanding that to a group of 30 or 40 or 50 people. Actually, that's not a bad way to look at it. So literally like... You hire yeah. a career coach or a judo coach. Exactly. A, and that's know. actually what we, that mm. is exactly what we do for our clients, by the way. We try to avoid the word coach because mm. it sounds like we're somehow higher or better than they are, but mm. that's exactly what we do. Now, it would but also imply said, that you're wearing some sort of cos- cosplay. Exactly. Like a sports ball exactly. cosplay and you'd be doing sporty sports ball things and that's not, a, that's not very business-like in my mind. Or the executive coach thing, which I know drives a lot of people crazy because there's the personal coach and there's the executive coach. And it's sort of like, oh, tell me how you feel about your coworkers. Like, no, I'm not <laughs> going to talk about how you feel about your coworkers. Oh, I have um, so many bad stories about life coaches <laughs> and career coaches who were just the worst. Pro- I was in a company once, and I'll, I'll deviate, and they had a large team of project managers. The project managers were all, as far as I was concerned, very mediocre to horrible. And all of a sudden, a couple of them got a hold of the idea of being life coaches and off they oh, went and, and no. did it. And they all turned into life coaches and off they went. And we were, I was very pleased to see them gone because they were horrible. <laughs> they were, but they used to, their project meetings were, can you yeah, imagine a life coach in an IT project meeting? <laughs> I, I can't even. And I will be really fair. I've hired an executive coach. She's fantastic. Mm. Not currently, but very helpful in sorting through mm-hmm. th- sorting through politics because most of us as engineers are, are clueless about politics. So the very idea that there was such a thing as corporate politics was surprisingly novel to me at age 40 something. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, we're digressing. But mm-hmm. coming back to this, I, I, I just want to remind everybody that there is a logical process for a, a technology strategy. And it starts like this. Understand or document the business drivers. And the first complaint is, well, we don't know what they are. And coming back to your question, should we just appoint somebody? Uh, no, you may have a ringleader. I, I, we would suggest, as we've said, we would suggest that you guys hire a coach, you know, a coach, a consultant. And we'll talk about what makes a good consultant and a bad consultant downstream. If you do, what the first thing they're going to do is convene a group a group meeting where you sit down and ask yourselves what the business drivers are and try to understand what they are. And that's going to take a little unearthing hmm. because most businesses are the they have strategies, but they're not well articulated and they have nothing to do with what they put on their financial reports hmm. if they make financial reports. Now, so this, kind of can, I'm just going to interrupt you what, there for a second, if I may. If you don't understand business requirements or the idea of integrating with the business. And it's not always easy for an IT person who's used to doing hard things, hard technical things that have manuals and exact ways of doing things to suddenly get into the wafty business values and all that sort of stuff. And my suggestion to you is to start that slowly. If you want to add that to your career, 
just start engaging with business people and talking to them and listening to them and not understanding them at first probably. But over time, you'll realize that understanding the business is actually a trivial thing compared to doing something in technology. Really trivial. It absolutely is. And when I talk about business drivers, I'm not talking about fancy, you know, uh, high-level consulting BS, right? I'm talking about literally, hey, we are apparently in the business of growing by acquisition because we just bought 15 companies in the past 10 years and it looks like the you know powers that be are going to buy a bunch more. Mm-hmm. And you probably know this because you've been responsible for integrating their infrastructure. So it's pretty safe to say that one of your business drivers is growth by acquisition. Con- conversely, you may look at something that says, God, we've never bought a company in our entire lives, but we seem to have more and more new products and new clients and new geographies. So, you know, growth by geographical expansion. Yeah. Or we seem to have, well, last year we had eight products and now we have 80 products. And next year it looks like we're going to have 800 products, growth by expanding product line. All of these things are possible business drivers. I've also worked with clients who don't have growth as a business driver at all. Their main goal is profitability. So they want to wring the costs out of everything that they're doing, keep selling to the, the same stuff to the same people year over year, but do it more cheaply year over year. Mm. That's a legit business driver. These are all things you can figure out by looking at what's going on around you. And, and Greg, as you said, mm. it's, mm. Not, it's not nearly as hard as technology. It's much easier. <laughs> There's parts of the business there that can be very complicated. If you're building up spreadsheets and models to say, if we did this and if we, you know, that can be quite technical in its sense that you know analyzing the business but that's you're not being asked to do that you're just being asked to have an understanding or have some empathy to what's going on around you to my mind that is where some consultants can come in and help you get started because they can go in and ask the questions that you can't and then suddenly you have permission because the consultant is there consulting and you're asking and and the, the it team is sitting in on those meetings if potentially or potentially not, but they should be, you can suddenly say, oh, I understand oh, yeah. the business now and add that to your resume and skill set. And by the way, once you've learned it, you never have to learn it again. You can constantly be growing and learning, but it's not something that you have to hire a consultant every year, every time your strategy changes. No. But once you've got the business drivers, then the fun begins because that's when you sit down and say, okay, what technology principles fall out of these business drivers? And let's just use a simple one. Growth by acquisition means whatever you do has got to be as modular as possible. So you can integrate, you want to really minimize the effort required for that integration. So you may say things like modularity is a technology principle that aligns with that business driver. Or you may say things like cloud first, because it's a lot easier to integrate infrastructure that's in the cloud. That may not be the right answer. I'm just saying it may. The point is that a technology principle is somewhat abstract, modularity cloud first. And you want to kind of discuss amongst yourselves what that actually means to each of you so that you can you can turn that abstraction into something that becomes useful downstream. Right. Then once you've got the technology principles, you can put together the architecture. And the thing about the architecture is that it shouldn't have vendor names in it. If your architecture is or strategy is Microsoft or your architecture or strategy is Google or your architecture or strategy is Cisco, you're doing it wrong. You should have functions. Now, it's perfectly okay to say, okay, we need a solution. You know, we need a cloud-based solution that looks an awful lot like Azure, right? Yeah. But at this stage, you want to say, okay, we're looking at IaaS and PaaS, not we're looking at Azure, right? What you want to do is build out what will deliver on those technology principles that will then deliver on the, the, the business drivers. 
Mm-hmm. And the magic here is that this is an unbroken chain. Yep. Once you figure out that the bus- the technology principles instantiate the business drivers, there's no argument. Why are we modular? Because we have this business driver of growth by acquisition. Oh, yep. okay. You don't Why? have to argue with that. That's right. Why are we spending so much on new hardware? Every time we hire a company, we have to bring them in to the same standard. So we generally have to replace their IT. Right. Right. Why do so, we change so instead, their IT? Let's make it modular yeah. so we don't. So yeah, that's right. So you know, or, yeah, exactly. Whatever. This gets back to the whole difference between the strategy and the architecture, because the strategy is this whole big picture that encompasses the business drivers, the technology principles, and then includes the architecture, which is, has to be a subset of a handmaiden of the strategy. Your okay, architecture so define, exists in define the architecture hmm? then as a part that's different. So strategy is business grows by acquisition, expects to make strategy is the whole spectrum. So at one end is the business drivers, then the technology principles, then the architecture, then the roadmap for getting to the architecture, and finally things like the selection criteria and the decision points for particular products, as well as any other right. um, functional output that you have. Right. So the strategy is all of that from soup to nuts. Right. The architecture is one piece of the strategy, yeah. which is essentially, and you said define it. Uh, I still keep thinking of the old definition, and this is from the first dot-com boom, which was the bubbles and arrows. It's yeah. like you have to have the key components noted and how they interact with each other noted. So what the interfaces are between the key components, but without using vendor names or mm-hmm. product names. Okay. So you say cloud, not Azure or AWS. But if you're saying, okay, this this information, this data is passing from the cloud here. We get users get access to the cloud from this network over there. The storage for the cloud is over here. Mm-hmm. That's where you start getting into the architecture again without using vendor names. So this gets into the idea of product selection criteria. Once you've got an architecture and you know you define the interactions, then you can say, I'm going to buy a product that does this piece of architecture that addresses this need. And you say, this is my product selection criteria. Now, this is important because so many times I've seen companies go in and say, oh, yeah, we've got this. We're going to buy this stuff and it's going to solve this problem. And then they come out the other side 300% over budget. They've got 5,000 more features than they need. It's spec'd out for 10 years instead of two. And the, the somewhere along the line, they lost track of where it is. That's why an architecture can save you a lot of money and time because it drives product selection criteria and keeps you on track. And so you don't get lost when the salesperson says, oh, look at this shiny feature. And you go, oh, I want that. You say, no, 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 I don't need that. I don't want it. Does that make sense? That does. And that's exactly it. You nailed it perfectly, Greg. And this is why I sort of re- resist the notion of mini strategies, because the problem is they can then l- lend themselves to mini architectures, which when you try to go put these all together, you realize, oh, we can't. It's not possible. We can't do A and B at the same time. Mm. There's a there's a high risk of that when you do, you know, sort of that ground up strategizing. It's yeah. better than nothing, but it's not much better than nothing. <laughs> I think the other big thing is most of the infighting that I've seen in in IT departments, you know, yeah, we have our share of politics, but realistically, you know, we're the geeks in the corner. So we're not going to be, you know, appointed the head of sales for the most important line of business in the company. That's just not happening in our careers. What we fight about is which technology is right. And unfortunately, being human, we all fall in love with a particular vendor, a particular approach to solving a problem. And we then game the system so we get our vendor in place. And that might be for conscious reasons, like I have an entire team trained up on Cisco or Microsoft and I don't want to lose them Mm. because we switch. Or it might be because you legitimately believe that this particular solution is better. 
But it doesn't matter because the output of the architecture is giving you that framework to make that selection. And because of that unbroken chain, Mm. It gets you gets you the answers to the five whys. Why is the selection criterion important? Because it aligns with the architecture. Why is the ar- why is the architecture like this and not like that? Because it instantiates the technology principles. Mm-hmm. Why do we have these technology principles? Because they they instantiate the business drivers. So, so the five whys sounds like a fairly common tool. That's actually that's the way you said it makes me think like that's a common consulting term. It is. It's actually Japanese, as are a lot of these process things. And basically, the premise behind the five whys is literally when anything happens, you ask, why did that happen? And the first answer, you know, let's say, oh, my God, the network crashed. Why did that happen? Well, Jana entered the wrong wrong command in the command line. Well, why did that happen? Why was it possible for Jana to enter the wrong command? Oh, well, we didn't actually protect that that particular step of the process with the right controls. Why didn't we do that? Oh, because our policy actually has a gap over here that didn't look at these particular <laughs> sets of controls. So you ask the why the, question the, five times before you get to the actual cause to, to, as, exactly. a concept, as a concept or a tool or whatever, right? Exactly. And it's super, super important. Thank you for picking up on that because mm. I do treat it like it's well known and, and most folks kind of nod and go, I don't know what she's talking about. But yeah. but that is super important because it gets you to the root of what's going on and it shows you what needs to get changed. And the example I always like to use, by the way, side note, mm. is um, when ATM machines first came out, there was a huge problem because people would go in there, they would put in their cards and they would leave the card in the machine because what would happen is the machine would release the money before it released the, the card. card. Yep. And so you would take the money and forget that you left the card. And they and you could say, oh, well, what was the problem? Well, the person was stupid. They took the money and left the, the card. Or you could say, gee, that's a stupid way to do things. And they inverted it. So now your card comes back first and your money comes back second. Yeah. And, and you have simple, to take your card out before the money gets released. It's That's the kind of thing where you can, once you take this dispassionate approach to why did this happen? I do want to highlight, though, the we've we've sort of there's an undercurrent of having a culture that allows you to do after action reviews and i mentioned the word dispassionate mm. part of the problem here is everybody avoids these because they think they're going to be giant blame games yeah. jana bad jana you <laughs> entered the wrong command and took down the network yeah. bad jana yeah. well if that's what you're doing then yes you're just going to get a lot of ill feeling and no effective outcome yeah i once heard somebody what? say hey, let's let's have a meeting and get the blame thrower out <laughs> I thought it was very funny. It is funny, but it's not funny to the person that's getting burnt. No. Um, So so one of the things that I actually promote is this notion of NTSB rules, which is the National Transportation Safety Bureau rules. When they investigate an accident, the basic premise is if you admit fault as part of the investigation, it can't be held against you. So you can actually find out, you know, oh, my gosh, the captain of the ship was drunk. Why was the captain of the ship drunk? Well, because, you know, whatever the process was. But once you figure that out, they can't the the ship shipping company can't be liable for letting this guy get drunk. You want to really understand what's going on and think about how to improve it. And Mm -hmm. and if you take NTSB rules to your after action review, then you're going to have a much more successful approach. Um, yes. But we sort of wandered off. Um, you know. <laughs> well, I tell you what, let's move on to some practical suggestions because we've wafted yeah. on about a lot of that. But let's let's uh, quickly head into the bad part about what are some practical suggestions for getting a process started? Again, uh, you know, I would suggest hiring an outsider because A, I am an outsider and we do this for a living. But B, it also, you know, as you can gather from this, we bring a lot of tools to the table that are not fancy, that are not super sophisticated, that you can very quickly learn to use yourself. But mm. the first time around, it's a lot. 
than well, I like being an outsider because I can ask questions that nobody else can ask. And exactly right, I can ask dumb questions and then get dumb answers and say that's dumb, whereas you can't, right? right? Because you've got to live with those people. Another one is I can take blame for things. So an outsider can come in and Mm -hmm. do things that you as a permanent employee can't. The one I said is, you know, like, that's not dumb. That's not clever. That seems odd. Why would you do it that way when that's definitely not, you know, one of my favorite ones was to say, why are you doing it that way? That is definitely not best practice or even that would be generally considered as worst practice. So why are you doing that? And that really upsets the apple cup. Not only are you saying you're doing it worst practice, but you're also saying there must be a reason why you're doing that. (laughs) And if the answer is none, I've got one for you. Uh, Don't bring your ideas too early. So as a consultant, you probably come in and you instantly yeah. see the, and the temptation is to bring your good point, you like to float your, you know, oh, that's worst practice. You should implement, instantly implement this best practice where that product's known bad. You should instantly place it. One of the mistakes a consultant does is bring their ideas too early because what happens is once you put your ideas on the table, you remove other ideas from entering the, you know, the discussion. You've got to listen hard is the motto that I've often had. I could not agree more, and I'm guilty of that often. I've had to train myself to bite my lip. The problem here, of course, is that most companies have the same problems. And you walk in and you go, oh, yeah, it's just a repeat of the other ones. And you know exactly how it's going to run. I know that sounds insulting and trivialization, but it is true. But nearly always. That's good and bad because it means that you might know how to fix a problem. The bad part is if you do get that one company that's actually not fitting the model, you might not know how to fix it. As I said earlier, one of the reasons that you don't want a person locked in a room coming up with a strategy is 80% of that strategy that you come up with in a room by yourself may be accurate, but the 20% is what makes all the difference, That yeah. the 20% that customizes it. So yeah, I would say the consultant's primary job really is to bring the process of strategizing to you so that you can in fact do it successfully part-time. You see what it takes to do it part-time and you can do it the next time around or in the you know, in the refresh update phase by yourself, because you remember how it worked and you remember all the pieces. Mm. Um, And I think that's our biggest value. But Greg, I don't want to let this go without asking you, how can you tell a good consultant from a bad consultant? Time management. Honestly, that's the best one. A good consultant knows that they're only there for, you know, four weeks, six weeks, one day, whatever it'll be. And they know that they have to produce a deliverable as they walk out the door or they won't be invited back or they won't be able to, you know, whatever it is, they have a statement of works that they're going to do. And you have to make your time management work. So you have to find ways to gather the information and produce a result in the time that you've been allocated. That, that's mine. What about yours? Uh, I would actually go back to what you said earlier about the whole listening. Um, a bad consultant is one that comes in with their own ideas at the beginning and won't listen to your ideas or conversely will simply accept your ideas uh, you know, I I love you. What, what's the, what's the word you like to use, Greg? It's like invariance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> points of I like to find points of invariance, or it's a fancy word. I use lots of fancy words when I'm consulting, like temporal architectural decisions, which basically means the the decision in this point in time. But points of invariance are things that are definitely not going to change. Like if a company's just signed a ten year license with Oracle, you can't change that. That's a fact. If you're dealing with a vendor that's locked in in somewhere, like increasingly with subscription stuff, like you work with a data lake and it's hosted on a SaaS service and it's impossible to move, then don't try and have that fight. Just sit there and say, that's a point listed out in your final report and say, this is regarded as a point, as an invariant topic. It can't be changed because of reasons that exist. 
that are obvious to everybody and you can just write, you know, quid pro tem, everybody has to accept it. And then away you go, right? And you can just take all these things off the table and just focus on what can be changed instead of what might. I think that's that's a legit high level approach, but I'm going to push back because quite quite often there are points of pseudo invariance. An example is a, a large client I was working with a couple of years ago gave us their point of invariance that from the CEO on down, nothing they did could be in the cloud because of the nature of their business. <laughs> and they meant public public cloud. Yeah. So we nodded and went, okay. And we went privately, that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> they will be in the cloud just like everybody else within 18 months. Yeah. So we are going to start a Skunk Works project so that as part of the strategy, if the pendulum swings and they end up in the cloud, yeah. uh, we have an answer. Wouldn't you know that during the life of that particular strategy, that that exact thing happened, yeah, yeah, and all yeah. of a sudden the CEO went, "We have to be in the cloud." Well, we the were challenge like, That's is cool. that as a consultant, you want to get paid, and if you say to me, "I'm never going to be in the cloud in the next eighteen months," does it earn you money? Does it earn you something by going against that, or especially if you have, it's your first engagement with a client? So what you do is you just put them in your report and say, "This was a statement. It was stated that this is an absolute requirement." Well. Yeah, but no, because all that is a CYA. I like to actually solve the problem. And but generally you want to have a solution for the problem. So we actually had a solution. We had a deck that got added to the main deck that said, this is how we do cloud. In the event that you move to cloud, this is how we so we looked good. Our team looked good because yeah. it's not about us getting paid or us looking good to the client. It's about making the client's team look good to the bosses at the company. Yeah, That's I guess what my point is, is that there are battles you don't want to fight. Really, points of invariance is there are battles you don't want to fight. The customer's yeah, using and, Microsoft and think, SQL or they're using Microsoft Windows servers. or Yeah, and I mean, for example, we have clients for whom, say, Microsoft is a client, and there is no way in hell that Microsoft will ever be booted out of that environment. So, yes, that's a point of invariance. You can't. Um, but yeah. I know we only have a couple more minutes, and I think at a practical level, one of the things your consultant will do, and I think this is super important when you get to bad or good consultants, a bad consultant will listen to you, pontificate at you, and then go away and write a report or create a deck in their little monastery and come back at the end of the exercise and share it with you. That's a terrible approach. No. Exactly. What you want to do is weekly, bi-weekly, or tri-weekly meetings, literally working group sessions for mm -hmm. as, as long as you can carve out of your schedule to sit down and do the brainstorming around this, review everything that's happening because it's a nice orderly sequence. Do we all agree that these are the business drivers? Well, no, actually I was thinking about it and great, capture yeah. that. And keep iterating, keep moving further from each meeting to the next. As you said, Greg, you have to have a good time management. You have to move the team on. Mm -hmm. But make sure that, A, there's buy-in, and mm -hmm. B, that where there isn't buy-in, that whoever raised the issue is taken seriously, and that issue is run to ground using the five whys or some other tool yeah. to make sure that it's incorporated in the strategy. My favorite saying around this, how do you know if a consultant is good or bad, is uh, if you've ever worked with McKinsey or Bain or one of those companies, um, they have a, a unique style, which is, and I call it asking the customer for their watch, telling them the time and then leaving with the watch. Right. <laughs> with the watch. Yeah. I love that part. Right. So what they do is come in, learn the lessons of your business and then tell you what the lessons that you, they've learned about your business are and then go and apply them at the next customer. If you have a consultant who goes away and says, well, it's going to take me two weeks to write the report, there's a probably a 70% chance that that's not a good consultant because they're juggling multiple engagements, one after the other, and they're trying to write the report in their spare time. That's That to me is a hard a hard marker of potential flaw. And they're often going I, to I be... actually disagree with that. I disagree with that entirely because we juggle you know, multiple clients all the time. The main 
red flag in what you just said was, I'm going to go away and write the report. Nope. That report, and this gets back to that report cannot be a product of the consultant. That The consultant can shape it. Yeah. The consultant can can recommend what parts should be in it. And the mm. consultant can document your thoughts so you don't have to be a PowerPoint or Word wizard, you know, because 80% of the time creating a report is screwing around with the application that you're using to create it in. Mm. Only 20% <laughs> is the content. Yeah. And so if if that consultant is accurately transcribing some of your thoughts and ideas that the ones that he or she agrees with to the, the deck or the document, um, then I think that's very different. I, no, there's, when I'm I was sure. consulting, I always um, produced the document as I went. Um, one of the, my, the favorite things that I see from consulting companies is they come on site and they do these all day engagements, right? Of just hours and hours. And then they go away and write a report and it comes in like a seagull you know, pooping yeah, on your head, right? Exactly. That's usually yeah, a sign. Exactly. No, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. I would come on site and sit there and then I would only schedule three to four hours of a day of meetings max. And then I would write the report. And so I would not kill the whole work cycle just to be a part of this consulting. Gig. Yeah. Well, see, I wouldn't do it that way at all. In fact, I, we don't do it that way. What we do is we come in and we have multiple working sessions over time um, we certainly shape the report. We also create where where the team agrees. We will create templates for the team to actually fill out. Mm. Um, so if there's information that needs to be presented in a certain format, we'll we'll show them the format, mm -hmm. and they will go out and get it and have that as their homework. Ninety nine times out of hundred, they don't have time to deal deal with homework. So that's what we use these working sessions for: figuring out two things. One is, do we have the answer to this? Yes. Let's put the answer here. We don't have the answer. Who knows the answer? Bob does. Okay, consultant will volunteer to go find Bob, interview Bob, and capture that information. Mm. Uh, but it's got to be really collaborative because if it's not, you're just getting an off-the-shelf mm -hmm. view of what the consultant thinks works for companies like you and something that doesn't really capture what you're doing. Also, I'd just like to point out that all the advice we just gave you is false because we're consultants. And you can't really answer this question honestly if you're actually a consultant. Well, I don't know that it's actually false. I'm just, we're just telling you what we've done. And, and strangely enough, people will come and, and give us money to come do it again. So yes. that doesn't, that doesn't prove it's a good idea yeah. any more than getting funded in Silicon Valley proves you have a viable product. <laughs> but, but I would say if you talk to our clients, they will tell you that, that uh, at least for us, I don't know about you, Greg, but they will tell you that, you know, Hey, this was, this was an, invaluable assist and we are much farther along than we would have been without you. So, and that's usually you know, what you want. Uh, with, yeah. Yeah. I prefer to be embedded with the company for a week or two and do my meetings over a period and writing the report at the same time. And then as I walk out the, and then hand in the report and then leave. We tend to work with larger companies. So we're embedded for a couple of months and embedded is a good word. That said, we we're not embedded eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, we might be embedded two to yeah. three hours, two to three times a week. I guess more often. And, and I, I think also, that works. I was, a lot of my work was also to do social engineering or re-engineering of teams to come in and fire people or get people to change their attitudes or show them a different way of working as much as, you know, there's different types of consulting, basically. There, there, there are, there are. And I would, we're specific to the strategy architecture roadmaps on a budget. Mm -hmm. And hopefully uh, we have given you some ideas and some good thoughts. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing that Greg and I agree on most things <laughs> here in this particular one. Who knows? But, uh, 
hopefully there you've learned a few things and obviously you can go ahead and reach out to us. Greg, where can folks find you if they are interested in following up with you? I'm, I'm increasingly moving away from Twitter. Um, I think that um, Elno, I think there's a different two people running Twitter. One is Elno and the other is Elon. It's a bit like Jekyll mm. and Hyde. And I think Twitter is lurching towards Elno more and more. Uh, so I am moving more and more towards LinkedIn. Uh, I do have an account on Mastodon and I may start to fire that up. If you're on Mastodon, uh, get in contact with me and uh, I'll probably start to try and make an effort to put more stuff over there. Okay. So find you on LinkedIn and possibly Mastodon. By the way, I have an account on Mastodon, but I admit I haven't checked it in a while. Uh, to reach out to us, you can hit us at nemertes.com. There's a community tab. Please fill it out. Join the community. It's where Greg and I hang out. You will see when these uh, when these podcasts get posted. And there's also a lot of other great content in there that you can dig around in, a lot having to do with strategy, architecture, and roadmaps. So with that, thanks for listening and talk to you again next time.